0: Greetings, podcast listeners. Once again, I am Dr. James Cole, and I'm recording yet another episode of Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Now, I had absolutely no intention of ever discussing this subject, and I certainly never planned on devoting an entire podcast to a specific disease or ailment, but I've been asked by far too many people to talk about this particular topic, and rather than continuing to to ignore them, I will do my best to summarize all that I know about this new and perplexing infectious disease affecting so many people worldwide. For those of you who listened to my introductory podcast, I never mentioned any intention of discussing general public health measures. And being a surgeon, I typically don't think about infectious disease epidemics. But the novel coronavirus is big news these days, and a lot of people are really concerned. And as always happens, misinformation gets peppered in, with the reliable recommendations. Whereas it's uncommon for me to receive emails regarding public health news or other issues, I now receive multiple daily updates from the federal government, from the medical and surgical societies, from the university and from the hospital where I spend most of my time caring for patients of what's new and what's being done to counter the current problem. Despite the fact that I am a surgeon, I've always had an interest in public health, although I rarely discuss it. I read about it, and I talked to my family members about the various topics and issues. But as a surgeon, the global spread of a new global illness is not part of my usual day-to-day business. When I was deployed in my third deployment to the combat zone, I was assigned the title of force surgeon and was made responsible for the overall healthcare and the well-being of an entire NATO force of deployed service members in the Southwest region of Afghanistan. Part of my job included public health and preventive medicine. Thus, I've been well-versed in the practical aspect of disease control and prevention. When I was in medical school, I always adopted the notion that, regardless of whatever specialty I would choose to eventually pursue, it would behoove me to become knowledgeable in all aspects of the basic sciences, medicine, and surgery, which encompass all of healthcare. And that's exactly what I did. Thus, I feel comfortable with reading the material presented by the various authorities on this new disease. I feel comfortable interpreting the data out there, albeit little available, and I feel comfortable with summarizing this issue for all of you listening. I think I'll start with a bluff statement. Bluff, meaning bottom line up front. My bluff statement regarding the new coronavirus is, do not panic. Yes, this is a serious problem that requires a lot of attention and focusing of resources so as to contain the virus, to prevent its spread, to study it, and to treat it but in no way am I advocating for the masses to adopt a prepper type mentality where they go into seclusion for the foreseeable future and store up a year's worth of food, water and ammunition in anticipation of the apocalypse. That is simply not going to happen here. Whereas we do not know much about this new strain of coronavirus, what we do know that it is not Ebola, where half of the infected people died. And whereas we are all waiting for the federal government or the World Health Organization to do something, know that they are. They're doing a lot, as a matter of fact, and I will get into that all later in the podcast. And I want all of you to realize that there's a lot that each one of us can do as individuals to minimize our risk of exposure to the disease, and there's a lot that we can do as a community to protect us all as a body of people so as to flatten the curve, so to speak, slowing the transmission of this disease. This new disease is called COVID-19 and is caused by a newly discovered strain of a family of already known viruses called coronavirus. COVID-19 is caused by the SARS-CoV-2 strain and was previously unknown to physicians and scientists who study infectious disease. The virus was initially discovered in Wuhan, Hubei Province, China, but is now spread to over 30 countries across the globe. The first documented case of COVID-19 occurred in December of 2019, thus giving the suffix 19 to its name. Now I need to make it perfectly clear that I am not an infectious disease physician and I'm not a virologist, nor did I major in microbiology in college, but I have access to all of the information available to me via the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and I have other resources as well, and thus I will distill what I'm able, and I'll try to make this topic as understandable as possible for the non-medical listener. For starters, there have been over 90,000 cases of confirmed COVID-19 worldwide, in over 100 cases within the US. As of the recording of this podcast, there have been six confirmed deaths within the US and approximately 3,100 deaths worldwide. But whereas coronavirus and specifically COVID-19 have gained a ton of press lately, I think that it's important to point out that the flu repeatedly causes more deaths each year than do car accidents and motorcycle accidents combined. In fact, it was estimated that up to 50 million people in the U.S. contracted the flu in 2019, and up to 46,000 people were thought to have died from the flu that same year. Thus, about nine people died for every 10,000 people diagnosed with the disease, translating to a death rate of about 0.9%. And the prior year was even worse, with an estimated 80,000 people in the U.S. alone dying of the flu. But influenza is largely preventable, and it's most oftentimes treatable and having no vaccine currently available to prevent COVID-19 and no anti-infective agents yet known to cure the disease, this new infectious agent is already creating a lot of chaos and a lot of havoc. As I said, there have been six confirmed deaths within the U.S. to date, but with only about 100 documented cases, this translates to a 6% mortality. Yet I don't feel that a population of 100 infected individuals is a large enough sample size to come to the conclusion that the death rate from COVID-19 is actually 6%. Worldwide there have been approximately 90,300 cases of COVID-19 and approximately 3,100 deaths, translating to a mortality rate of about 3%. Thus 3% overall death rate accounting for all of those infected is more likely, yet this number is likely to change. But regardless, without an established cure for the disease, COVID-19 may prove to be a much deadlier disease than the flu. And like the flu, most of those who have succumbed to the COVID-19 coronavirus are elderly patients, those with pre-existing lung disease or those with severe immunocompromised conditions, such as those on long-term steroids, those receiving chemotherapy for cancer treatment, or those on anti-rejection medications following organ transplantation. Even in China, where the virus is thought to have originated and where almost 90% of all cases have been identified, the highest percentage of deaths are seen in patients over 80 years of age, and a combined 23% of all deaths occur in patients 70 or older. Less than half of a percent of deaths occur in patients aged 50 through 59, just over 1% among those aged 40 through 49, and only 0.2% of deaths in each category of patients Aged 10 through 19, 20 through 29, and 30 through 39, respectively. Thus, it is a disease which, like the flu, mostly consumes the elderly and those most immunologically vulnerable. Because the symptoms of COVID 19 are similar to those of the flu, it may be difficult to initially distinguish between the two diseases. And thus, a high index of suspicion must be placed on anyone who comes down with a fever, cough, body aches, fatigue, and perhaps some shortness of breath, especially if they've recently traveled to China, or have had close contact with someone who recently traveled to China, or anyone with these symptoms who has come into contact with someone known to have been infected with a novel coronavirus. This is quickly evolving into a global crisis, in part because of the fear of the unknown, but in many ways because of the very real threat it poses to the worldwide community. Universities are suspending study abroad programs in China, South Korea, and Italy, and this may soon broaden as new cases are tallied. And the disease has now extended to the Middle East with over 1,500 cases being recently documented in Iran. Thus there is talk of COVID-19 becoming a global pandemic, that being a widespread uncontrolled disease, aka epidemic, which spreads among multiple continents. And whereas this may become the case, I think that it's wise to keep this disease in perspective and compare it to some of the worst pandemics known in history. Prior to developing the enormously successful treatment regimens now available, HIV and AIDS killed more than 36 million people since 1981. The H3N2 strain of influenza A, better known as the Hong Kong flu of 1968, killed over a million people, half of whom were in Hong Kong. The H2N2 strain of influenza A, the pandemic which killed about two million people between 1956 and 1958 was also quite deadly. But the deadliest strain of the flu, causing the greatest number of deaths, began in 1918 when up to a third of the world's population was debilitated by this virus, and approximately 50 million people died, half of whom were within the first six months of discovery, resulting in up to a 20% mortality rate among those infected. Fortunately, more than three months have passed since the first case of COVID-19 was discovered, and only about 3,100 deaths have been reported. Thus, COVID-19 seems to pale in comparison to the AIDS pandemic and to even the lesser of the influenza pandemics just mentioned. We should all try to learn as much as possible about COVID-19, and I'm hoping that this podcast helps satisfy that recommendation. As I mentioned already, the symptoms of COVID-19 are very similar to that of the flu, fevers, cough, and body aches. And whereas they are relatively nonspecific, this disease can lead to severe breathing problems, sometimes resulting in respiratory failure, requiring being placed on the ventilator in the ICU. In the most extreme cases, patients develop septic shock, where a widely disseminated bloodstream infection causes the blood pressure to fall to critically low levels, resulting in lack of adequate oxygen delivery to the brain, kidneys, and to other body organs. But not all patients infected with the virus causing COVID-19 develop these symptoms. In fact, it seems possible that some patients' symptoms are so mild that they may not even seek medical attention and thus may unknowingly spread the virus to others. Because scientists do not yet know what the interval period of time is from when someone is infected with the virus and when the disease can be spread to others, it may be possible to spread the illness long before symptoms begin and perhaps well after the symptoms have resolved. Because the novel coronavirus belongs to a family of other known coronaviruses, Data taken from two other well-studied viruses in the family might suggest that the disease may be spread for weeks after the onset of symptoms, and whereas it may be spread prior to symptom development, this is yet to be determined. Because other coronaviruses have an incubation period of between 2 to 14 days from when the virus is contracted until when symptoms begin, it is assumed that the same applies to the novel coronavirus. Thus, those thought to have been potentially infected with the COVID-19 virus may be quarantined for two weeks to prevent the inadvertent spread of the illness. Very little information is available from the other viruses in the corona family regarding exactly which bodily fluids are likely able to transmit the virus to others. Parts of the novel coronavirus have been detected in the upper and lower respiratory tract secretions, and traces have also been discovered in the blood, urine, and stool of those with active disease. But it's not yet known as to whether COVID-19 can be spread from secretions other than those coming from the lung. And whereas most people who contract other viral illnesses and recover are subsequently immune to the same disease, the way the body interacts with the novel coronavirus remains somewhat of a mystery. And whereas patients infected with other viruses in the corona family rarely get reinfected, it's not yet known whether or not similar immunity will be conferred after recovering from COVID-19. Because healthcare workers are among the most likely to come in contact with people infected with the novel coronavirus, How can they protect themselves from getting infected? Well, because so little is known about this disease, the CDC advises that anyone caring for patients, even remotely suspected as being infected with the coronavirus, take all precautions necessary. The CDC, the federal government, state and local agencies, as well as university and large community hospitals have been working diligently trying to slow the spread of this virus and to contain the disease. Measures include identifying cases of COVID-19 and their contacts, monitoring the identification of new cases, caring for travelers arriving back to the U.S. who have returned from areas known to harbor the virus, and research into finding a vaccine and effective treatment options. Some of the measures may seem burdensome, such as the time-consuming process of screening groups of individuals at the airport, but measures are necessary so as to slow the spread of the illness to provide additional time for healthcare systems, businesses, and schools to deal with the problem and to better characterize the virus, which can lead to more refined recommendation and deployment of disease-fighting countermeasures. Know that the CDC is partnering with the World Health Organization on this effort, and should you want to follow their progress, you can learn a lot of information from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website. Nearly 1,500 CDC staff workers have been assigned to fight the COVID-19 problem. This robust staff includes doctors and nurses, veterinarians, epidemiologists, and data analysts, all trained in infectious disease identification and management. They are deployed throughout the U.S. and abroad and are working closely with local authorities to coordinate all efforts. The CDC is working closely with the Department of Homeland Security, screening all travelers returning from China and other high-risk areas for signs and symptoms of the disease. They are working with the U.S. State Department and with the Department of Defense, evacuating U.S. citizens and their families who are located internationally. If necessary, persons at risk are housed and monitored at controlled locations under a 14 day period of quarantine and care is being provided throughout for those diagnosed with the disease. If a person is identified as someone at risk for developing COVID-19, either from general exposure in a high risk area or from close personal contact with people suspected or known to have had the disease, they are classified as persons under investigation. Of the persons under investigation, or PUIs, as they are commonly called, 3% have since tested positive for the disease, 86% have tested negative, and 11% are in a pending status. Laboratories use sophisticated testing to detect the SARS-CoV-2 virus or the new coronavirus. This testing includes polymerase chain reaction technology, which amplifies tiny segments of DNA, thus aiding in the detection of even the most subtle traces of the disease-causing agent. Positive tests are then confirmed by the CDC so as to best ensure accuracy. The CDC is also working on mass production of a new blood test able to detect two different types of antibodies generated by the body signifying present or past exposure to the virus. The National Institutes of Health, otherwise known as the NIH, is working with scientific partners to develop a new vaccine effective against the new coronavirus, and they are studying investigational drugs thought to be effective against COVID-19. In China, where the lion's share of this disease is centered, two ongoing clinical trials studying the effects of remdesivir, an antiviral agent, on the disease. The NIH is also sponsoring its own clinical trials of new and investigational drugs, including remdesivir. And additional ongoing research is being conducted to further study the incubation period of the virus, the length of time virus is shed among those infected, influencing the length of time required if isolated under quarantine, and the manner in which the virus is spread. In a nutshell, there is a lot being done, and a lot has already been done, to combat and control this dreadful illness. The CDC is also constantly updating their travel notification system, warning those considering international travel which areas may be inadvisable. A level three travel notice is issued for all areas where the CDC feels that all non-essential travel should be avoided. These areas include China and South Korea. A level two travel notice is issued for all areas where enhanced precautions are recommended for all entering or passing through these countries, which presently includes Japan, Iran, and Italy. And level one travel notice is issued for other countries are out there as well. I would advise anyone contemplating international travel to consult with the CDC website to see if their travel plans might include any of these high at-risk areas. For those of you who have listened to my previous podcast, Snow, I typically take a break somewhere in the segment to give a shout out to some aspect of healthcare in America, which I feel is truly good and worthy of knowing more about. And nothing could be more appropriate today than to highlight the people who work for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Founded in 1946, this agency of the federal government has evolved into the leading National Public Health Institute of the U.S. principally focused on preventing infectious disease. The CDC also strives to ensure that the food we eat is safe, that our environment is free from excessive contamination, that there is safety in our workplaces, and they remain advocates for injury prevention. And they also gather information and do research on numerous health issues, such as alcohol use, autism, cancer, diabetes, obesity, cigarette smoking, sexually transmitted diseases, and women's health, to name just a few. They also are involved in dealing with potential health disasters, such as bioterrorism or a nuclear weapons attack. Over 15,000 people work for the CDC, and most of them hold a master's degree or a doctorate degree. Those who go out to the source of a disease outbreak like to call themselves the boots-on-ground disease detectives. And like the reconnaissance members of a military unit, they serve as the tip of the spear in strange and foreign lands when hunting down the source of a potential new epidemic. Because most people do not know much, if anything, about these dedicated doctors, nurses, and scientists, that in and of itself is a testament to their ongoing success in keeping our nation safe against the ongoing threat of the world's most unusual illnesses. And thus this entire podcast is dedicated to those who serve in our nation's CDC, who I respect and admire greatly for all that they do. And with that, that brief but most deserved shout out, let's again get back on topic. As I said previously, there is no need to panic, but we should prepare, prepare in ways that can help ourselves and more important, prepare in ways that can help society as a whole and lessen the risk of exposure to this problematic disease as a society. Everyone is a part of some sort of a community, and as a member of that community, your neighbors depend on you, and you might be depending on your neighbors to control this illness. An individual's risk of infection is dependent on the likelihood of being exposed to the virus. Thus, the more people we expose ourselves to, the greater chance we have of getting exposed to the virus. It's important that if someone has a documented case of COVID-19, that he or she be quarantined, thus keeping the human vector away from the rest of society for the necessary period of days so as to minimize the inadvertent spread of the disease. It is also important for each of us to wash our hands frequently, and if we are in a position to care for others who are ill, to wear the necessary and proper protective personal equipment. This isn't all that dissimilar to recommendations made to help minimize the spread of the influenza virus. By minimizing our contact with others by keeping those with documented illness away from the general population until they are well, and by washing our hands frequently, we can unequivocally flatten the curve, slowing the transmission of this disease. By slowing the rate of COVID-19, scientists are given more time to develop an effective vaccine and effective treatment medications rather than being forced to release something prior to adequate testing with subsequent questionable effectiveness. So what else might we do? What additional considerations are out there, if any? Well, since nobody likes to get the flu, and since based on the current information available to us, we know that between two to 3% of those who contract COVID-19 die without any currently available treatment other than supportive care, the most effective way of flattening the curve and thus slowing the spread of this new disease is community-wide self-isolation. People should stay at home unless they absolutely need to be out and about. Fewer human contacts translates to decreased spread of the disease, and fewer people infected with the novel coronavirus means fewer sick people congregating in overcrowded emergency rooms and overwhelming hospitals. Everyone who hasn't already done so this season should get the flu vaccine, not because the influenza vaccine will prevent one from contracting the coronavirus, but to minimize the likelihood of contracting the much more likely, less virulent, but still significant flu virus. Because flu symptoms are very much like those of COVID-19, those who develop a fever chills body aches and a cough are likely to develop unnecessary fear of having the coronavirus when in fact they likely have come down with a case of the flu but who is going to stay home these days with flu symptoms because the risk of contracting covid-19 is very real most people will go to the er where they expose themselves to others in mass and become exposed to others in mass And thus, by getting the flu shot and by thus preventing the more common and less virulent of the two viral illnesses, we can minimize overall contact with others and decrease our chances of coming in contact with someone infected with the novel coronavirus. By the way, speaking of immunizations, and speaking of our communal role in preventing the spread of infectious disease, I feel the need to briefly discuss the concept of herd immunity. Herd immunity is a form of indirect protection against a particular disease that happens When the vast majority of those in a population are immunized and thus most don't get the illness and thus most don't transmit the illness to those who either didn't get vaccinated or to those who did receive an immunization but it didn't take. When the overwhelming majority of individuals in a group get immunized, the group as a whole gets protection by way of herd immunity. But the effectiveness of herd immunity is weakened when more individuals choose to not get immunized. When many within a group are vulnerable to infection and one gets infected, that infection spreads not only to the other unimmunized individuals, but also to those in whom the vaccination simply didn't provide an effective immune response. Thus refusing to be immunized for personal reasons, often reasons not supported by well-conducted and well-designed research, the population as a whole suffers, and the population as a whole becomes more vulnerable to disease. Thus, I am a strong advocate for immunizations, and most especially, the flu shot. Going back to what else might we be able to do to prevent the spread of COVID-19, we can limit where we gather. For example, whereas we might ordinarily enjoy going to a basketball game or to a theater to watch a play, or doing anything that forces us into a packed room filled with people largely unknown to us, perhaps we might best avoid those venues for a while. If we do decide to venture out and spend time in close quarters with large groups of people, it's best to avoid handshakes and high fives or any other sort of touching. And if we do participate in a lot of touching, it's best to liberally apply hand sanitizer as often as possible. And if we have the option of working from our computer at home, this might be a good time to take advantage of that option. If we are a manager of others and we might be able to relax the work from home rules, perhaps that might be in the best interest of most. Certainly, if we are sick, we should not be going into work. And if we cough, it's never appropriate to contaminate others. And what about masks? Certainly, I see a lot more people wearing surgical masks these days, but are they safe and are they effective? The answer is really quite simple. For those who are sick with a common cold, with the flu, or even COVID-19, wearing a surgical mask will decrease the transmission of virus from that sick individual to another. However, if you are not sick, Wearing a surgical mask will not decrease the chances of you inhaling infective viral particles, and thus they are relatively worthless for those who aren't already sick. However, that only applies to the wearing of surgical masks. There are other masks out there, better masks, which do protect healthy individuals from contracting another's illness. The most basic example of this is the N95 mask, which is a tightly fitting mask specifically designed to minimize the inhalation of contaminants. But these are not as widely available as are the much more common surgical masks. But there's no doubt in my mind that you can purchase them via the internet. And if you do choose to wear the N95 mask, be sure to dispose of it if it gets moist from your respirations, and be sure to not touch the mask itself, but instead handle it by the securing strap so as to minimize your hands from getting contaminated by layers of viral particles. And when you do touch something, anything really, Make sure that you don't subsequently touch that same hand to your mouth or face, as this is one of the most common ways in which we transmit upper respiratory tract infections from one person to another. But what if a number of people in our community get contaminated and we want to avoid society as a whole altogether for a while? Or what if we get sick from, say, the flu and want to be a good neighbor and not infect the rest of society, thus creating the potential for others who fear the coronavirus from getting sick? That means that we need to stay inside, stay at home for a while, perhaps a few weeks, but we can't do that if we don't have enough of our most basic necessities to allow for that to happen. Again, I am not advocating adopting a prepper's mentality, but it makes sense for all of us to have at least a few weeks' supply of water, of canned or dried foods, a several weeks' supply of our medications, and something to keep us entertained. Thus, in the event we do decide to seal our doors and stay and limit our exposure to others, we will be able to do so comfortably. Having just advocated for people to consider avoiding large groups, especially closely gathered groups, and having asked that you strongly consider minimizing your potential of being exposed to others who may be sick, what if you are among those of us whose job is to cater for the sick and injured? What if you are a healthcare worker? What does the CDC recommend for those of you who work in a hospital or around sick people in general? Because we still don't exactly know how the coronavirus is spread, despite being fairly confident that it is at least spread via respiratory secretions, and because we still don't have a complete understanding of the incubation period of the virus or when viral shedding starts or stops, the CDC recommends that all healthcare workers use all precautions necessary to minimize their risk of exposure to the virus when caring for persons under investigation of having COVID-19. So what does this include? This includes following standard precautions, contact precautions, airborne precautions, and using eye protection. Standard precautions include frequent hand hygiene, that is washing with soap and water before and after contact with a patient and immediately after touching blood, bodily fluids, or contaminated items such as bandages. It also includes wearing gloves, gowns, and wearing masks, and the safe handling of needles so as to avoid getting stuck. Standard precautions include the safe handling of potentially contaminated equipment and proper disposal of medical waste. And lastly, standard precautions include covering your mouth when you sneeze or cough. Contact precautions kick it up a notch. Following contact precautions, healthcare providers need to wear protective gowns and gloves with patients. And when they exit the room, these gowns and gloves must be properly removed and disposed and hands are washed with soap and water or hand sanitizer under certain circumstances. Airborne precautions include the wearing of the N95 mask or the Powered Air Purifying Respirator Not just the basic surgical mask. And thus, you see that if you're a healthcare worker and if you're required to care for anyone admitted with an unknown flu-like illness and based on a series of questions has placed that person into a person under investigation status until COVID-19 has been excluded, the CDC directs that all of the above precautions be followed. And what about for those of us who work in the field of waste management? Do they need to have any specific concerns? For example, do waste management workers need to worry about the wastewater and sewage from a hospital or from a community where there is an outbreak of COVID-19? The answer is no. All coronaviruses are susceptible to the usual measures used to ensure disinfection and the usual regimens used in all of our wastewater treatment facilities will be sufficient. However, wastewater workers and sewage workers are directed to follow all of their standard precautions required of them to do their job. If they follow their usual recommendations and wear all of the required personal protective equipment, they should be at no increased risk of contracting the coronavirus. And regarding medical waste from a known COVID-19 patient, this should be treated no differently than any other type of medical waste. And, following that final vignette, I believe that I've exhausted all of my knowledge surrounding the novel coronavirus and COVID-19. I would never have imagined that I would read so much about a topic which bears so little resemblance to surgery or trauma, but I actually enjoyed reviewing all the literature necessary to prepare this podcast. Whereas I'm sure that the state of this new disease will be in constant flux and in evolution for the next several months, I'm confident that there is no need to panic, but it is a time to act smartly. There is no reason why anyone should foolishly assume that this is a benign virus because it's already proven itself to be deadlier than the flu virus, and there is no reason why anyone should choose to not follow the precautions published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. As I always say, knowledge is power, and I'm hoping that after listening to this podcast that more of you now feel empowered to deal with this very real public health issue. Whereas I never had any intention of including a segment on the coronavirus in my series, I hope that this episode serves as a public health service for those who simply want or needed to know more on the subject. And with that concludes today's segment of healthcare in America, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I am Dr. James Cole, and as always, I thank you for listening. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us for our next episode of Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly.